Welcome everybody, this is Max and welcome back, back to Equals, a podcast about inequality and hope in the fight against inequality. We've been off air for quite a few months, so it's really exciting to be back and we've got an amazing season lined up. We're going to be interviewing some fascinating people over the next few months. But I have the pleasure and the privilege of perhaps the most exciting thing, which is introducing our new co-host, now Kote Darby, who's a great friend of mine and a great colleague at Oxfam and leads all our climate work in her day job. It's going to be leaping into the breach as a co-host with, with me and Nabil Ahmed, uh, the other co-host. So, Naf, do you want to say hello? Thank you so much, Max. Uh, thank you so much for the warm welcome. Really, really excited to be on this podcast with you and Nabil. You know, this is one of my favorite podcasts, um, and we have a great series coming up for our listeners. So looking forward to delving into important topics such as, you know, climate, inequality, monetary sovereignty, and so on. Yes, lots of amazing things. And I must say, it's great that we've got the time to do this this week, because this is probably your busiest time of year, isn't it? Because you're off to the, the COP next week, I think. Super busy. I'm really looking forward to COP, though, because it's the most important conference on climbing uh, this year. Despite the fact that it's in a petro state and despite all the corporate lobbyists, this is the moment where the global climate movement really gets to speak out, isn't it? So, um, yes, it's, it's, it's exciting, isn't it? Definitely exciting, but also, you know, we all need to prepare ourselves for, uh, you know, the fight. Uh, because especially this year, what we want to see is um, a clear agreement, you know, for a global just energy transition. So, yeah, we're ready for the fight, but also for Oxfam. Um, it's really important to see uh, climate and inequality on the agenda. You know, how is the world going to collectively tackle these twin crises of climate and inequality? So this COP is going to be... Um, interesting but as i said uh, we're going to have uh, i think we're going to see major fights especially around just energy transition yeah i think we probably will and on this issue of climate inequality that that is the topic of today's uh, podcast and uh, because we put out a big report on 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 the relationship between the gap between rich and poor and and the the fight to stop climate breakdown um and we're going to look into that report so it's a bit of a strange one because Naf and I were both involved in authoring uh, bits of the report. Um, so we're going to interview ourselves a bit, but we're also going to interview two of the other key authors of some of the other chapters, aren't we? Yes, yes. Uh, really looking forward to it. It's a really crucial report and one close to my heart. We have fantastic guests with us um, who are also co-authors of the report. Astrid Nilsson-Lewis, she's the lead researcher on climate for Oxfam Sweden. We also have Ashfa Kalfan, Oxfam America's Director of Climate Justice. Yeah, two really big brains when it comes to climate and I've learned so much on this report. Um, so yeah, let's get into the interview. Astrid, you get the first question. What does the latest data show us on the emissions of the richest and why should we care about the emissions of the richest? Right. So in the first chapter, we found that the global richest 1% are responsible for 16% of global consumption-based emissions. And this is for 2019, is the latest data that we just launched in this report. 
And this amount of emissions is actually the same as what the poorest two thirds of humanity emit. So I think it's worth taking a minute to really think about this fact. Through their consumption, the richest 1% of the world emits as much as 5 billion people. If we look back over the last 20 years, are they reducing their emissions at least? You know, what's the kind of trend in, in the emissions of the super rich? The, the data is quite similar to last time, but it's also really shocking if you think about it. That, you know, since the Paris Agreement and, and with all the discussions that there's been uh, on, on climate mitigation the last few years, we still don't see any change in the trend and the, the, the inequality in emission is still wild. Uh, Astrid, how, how do the richest uh, generate, you know, this much carbon pollution? I, I think you've touched upon it, but it would be great if you can give us examples. Right. So for the absolute richest, we're talking about, um, you know, yachts, private jets, several homes flying around the world. Um, and this is consumption emissions. And um, I mean, Oxfam has actually done some really great work last year looking also at you know, what it would look like if you looked at investments and then it's it's a completely different scale. It's um, the responsibility through through investments is huge in terms of emissions. Yeah, I mean, help us understand what that means. Right. So, I mean, we know that wealth is even more unequal than income, right? So that the poorest don't have investments simply and then the richest have, you know, wealth that is beyond imagination for normal people. And through those, they, they're basically, they're shareholders of companies. And if we look at what these companies uh, emit and kind of assign those emissions to, to, to these people to, to, to get an understanding of, you know, the responsibility they have through their investments, we, we get to wild numbers. To put it really simply for listeners, if a billionaire has a 10% stake in a corporation, you know, so say Jeff Bezos has a 10% stake in Amazon, then using our methodology, we said he was responsible for 10% of Amazon's emission. But we also looked at the three ways that rich people matter. One is their, their individual emissions from their lifestyles. The second one is their investments. And the third is much more about their power over our economy and the direction our economy takes. And I know your chapter looked at that quite closely, Ashfaq. So do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll mention that uh, Sunil Acharya um, uh, was also a co-author on that. The, the investments and the power kind of go together because if you think about how much you and me can actually control our emissions, there's a lot we can do. But um, things like you know where your energy comes from, you know how you tra- how you travel, uh, whether the you know the train or bus you are on is on renewable energy or 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 or, or, or on fossil energy, even even with the food in the in, in supermarkets, which often is, is, you know, you don't know exactly how it's produced. Those decisions are made by others. They're made by their investors. Um, and and, and which, which is why the, the billionaires who have the ability to, to decide where to put their money have so much power over our lives. But then there's the power over, over the politics. And um, we, we see that um, many of the billionaires actually use their money to change the policy to support uh, fossil fuels. So there's, if you think about German car manufacturers, you know they try, they've actively tried, and this is documented, to delay the phase out of fossil fuel powered cars. Uh, we talk in the report about Charles Koch, who spent decades 
um, trying to shift the Republican Party, and successfully so, from uh, being uh, willing to work on climate change to being pretty much a denialist group. The majority of them oppose climate action. So that's direct lobbying of politicians, but then funding a whole bunch of court uh, court cases. And the most damaging one was most recently to the Supreme Court, uh, which actually limited the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate ca- carbon emissions. Um, so it's you know, very, very successful in terms of the tactics and very, very clever. Yeah, I think you're right. They're, they are super clever. In, in your chapter, you talk about how even the idea of a, cor- a carbon footprint was invented by BP or something. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, a tactic to get... Um, to say it's not us who produce the fossil fuels, but it's you who, you people who buy it, <laughs> who are responsible. So they created a carbon footprint calculator uh, and they presented it as a wonderful thing, a wonderful contribution so that people can calculate their footprint. I mean, if you think about the people, you know, the uh, legislators, you know, they own a lot of fossil fuel stocks and industries. And also, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not just about purely about wealth. It's also, if it's also, if you think about gender, right? I mean, 70, 70% of legislators globally are, are are male, and that that kind of has an impact in terms of um, the the solutions that are proposed, or, the, or what's what's valued and what's not valued. What I thought was quite innovative in the report was we used Astrid's analysis of the one percent emitters, and then we worked out which legislators around the world are in that one percent, didn't we? We looked at um, Australia, European commissioners, American Senate. And UK cabinet ministers all in one percent. You know, if they're all in the, in the top one percent of emitters, and they are the ones passing the legislation, it, it just makes the likelihood of of progressive climate law that's going to actually stop climate breakdown much much harder to think of. We've said a lot about the people on the top now, but what about the other side of climate inequality, the ones who suffer the consequences? Do you want to speak to that a little bit, Nav? Definitely. To be honest, you know, it's this lethal combination of the uh, climate crisis and inequality uh, that really worries me because it's the poorest countries, yeah, and also the poorest people across the world that are the most impacted by the climate crisis. And sadly, these are people that have contributed the least to carbon pollution and climate change. It it just seems so incredibly unfair because... You know, climate change is a scientific phenomenon. You could imagine a, a scientific phenomenon that by chance impacted the most on the global north, on rich countries. And, and, and what a difference that would have made to climate politics. But what we've had, we've got this phenomenon of, of global warming driven by rich countries and their historical emissions primarily. And map after map in the report shows how the places where it's hitting hardest are, are the least responsible for those emissions. And, it, you know, decades of climate breakdown have already started hitting the poorest countries. And it's only when you start seeing floods in Germany or 40 degree heat in London that suddenly, you know, that the British public here are finally talking about it. So it just, I think it's in, incredibly sad and unfair, uh, as well as being unequal. Definitely, Max. To be honest, that's one thing I really struggle with. I'm sure a lot of people working within the aid sector, because, you know, you can keep on talking about um, the poorest that are impacted, whether they're in Niger or Ethiopia or Bangladesh. But I really feel like uh, 
you know, we're failing to recognize, you know, the sheer level of poverty, but also the number of people that are living in poverty, yeah? because we're talking about billions of people. Uh, we're not talking about two or three people being impacted. We're talking about billions uh, of people. There's a very interesting uh, stat uh, in the report uh, that says, you know, economic inequalities between countries are already 25% larger than they would be in a world without global warming. And the irony is global South countries, um, those in hotter climate, you know, their economic output is being hugely impacted. And global North countries that are especially in cooler climates, their economic output is actually increasing. This is very ironic. It shocks me again, even if I was part of writing the report, because I was also just going to joke, like, I mean, in in the UK, you can put tinfoil around bridges, which you did last year with um, when it got so hot. But in these countries, you know, you're so vulnerable. The agricultural system is hit so hard by these uh, by these climate stresses that it just deepens a, a situation that is already unequal. I remember at one point when we were talking with the Stockholm people, they were talking about um, the idea that rich people are able to insulate themselves. Uh, and this idea of insulation, I, I think we put it in the report because it's the sense in which, you know, um, uh, sometimes, I, mean, I, I don't know about you guys, sometimes like if you're, if you're at home in your nicely heated house and you could go the whole day and you don't know whether it even rained, you know, you've just been staring at your computer you know, for someone living in the global south, you know exactly what the weather is because your 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 life depends on it in, in a way that we're kind of insulated from from the weather. But I would also add, and I think it's really important that um, that's just as true for rich people in poor countries as it is for rich people in rich countries. You know, I mean, I saw that when I was living in Kenya. You know, most rich Kenyans. They, there were people literally starving to death a few hundred kilometers away, and yet you know they have top end supermarkets. If if the food prices are twice what they were last month, they won't even notice. That's another key message of the report. I think that the inequality of climate impacts is is within countries, not just between them. Um, and that the flip side of that is there are lots of poor people in Europe and and, and the US who are are very, very vulnerable to climate impacts already, aren't they? I mean, that's that's an important point too. Well, I was just going, I mean, you know, we looked at uh, uh, Dharavi, the, and there's this great picture that shows, you know, the informal settlement there and the plush neighbourhood right next to it. Um, and Dharavi is an informal settlement. It's six degrees hotter than the immediate um, neighbouring area. You know, when you talked about the German floods, um the report talks about the so people in the north are affected, uh, but when they are, they the the, the government kicks in and responds uh, swiftly. Uh, the German floods affected something like forty thousand people. The Pakistani floods affected a, a thousand times as many, thirty three million people. Um, but the response for the German floods was thirty five billion within a few weeks. The response for Pakistan was. A fraction of that, 8.5 billion over three years, mostly loans. Um, yeah, the really real, real discrepancy there. I think we can say a lot, to be honest, on impacts, uh, Ashfaq. You know, the, the stat that you mentioned for Pakistan, for instance, 
they actually uh you know had to prioritize and respond to this uh disaster and they have to spend the little money they had that they could have spent on education healthcare you know all the essential services they have to funnel it to this disaster but even then it was not enough yeah and in, in your in your chapter Sunil's chapter Ashvi you you did touch on this finance issue uh, and some of the solutions to that as well kind of bringing together the rich with with taxes do you want to say a bit about that because we we really tried to point to places where this money could be found didn't we i love talking about taxes thank you so much <laughs> you know i mean the thing is the it's not like you know it's like the money isn't there there are and the you know in this report uh, oxfam's added even more solutions than have been previously stated so you know windfall profits uh nav already talked about that um so just 45 yeah they made 237 billion a year in windfall profits um now that could be nicely nicely taxed um you know uh, one of the arguments that uh, politicians have said oh we don't tax that because they want to they they're supposed to invest that in renewable energy i mean fine if they get a you know it's fine to to say okay you know if you invest in renewable energy we don't tax that but the rest we will tax um so you know governments are being quite disingenuous in not doing what they can um some of the other solutions um uh, income tax on the wealthiest um which could raise billions and um then also taxing the investors tax them differently based on whether they're investing in polluting industries or whether they're investing in non-polluting industries those sorts of things could very easily shift uh, money away there's there's currently about a trillion dollars a trillion dollars invested every year in fossil fuels and that could be that could be significantly reduced through tax policy the the tax was one of the solutions but i mean chapter the final chapter was really trying to bring a bit of hope into this story wasn't it we did try and narrow down to kind of three areas where we thought action could make a massive difference um and i i mean the first one was about uh bringing together this narrative uh, around reducing inequality and beating climate breakdown so you know as oxfam we care passionately about raising the incomes and raising the consumption of most people on earth who are living on the breadline who are desperately poor they need more in their lives you know they they're not over consuming in any sense um and but we need to do that in a way that doesn't destroy the planet and i think the key message on on inequality there in the final chapter is that we we did at least some projections some numbers that show that it it would be possible to do that if you massively reduce inequality i.e. reduce uh the numbers and the wealth of the richest people and you redistributed that to ordinary people around the world you could raise the incomes and and make the lives of billions of people so much better without increasing carbon in fact we could cut carbon at the same time so i remember when we were doing this section astrid i remember you uh getting really into the kind of literature around the other benefits of greater equality you know it's not just the economic benefits that um do you want to say a little bit about that because i think that has implications as well for how societies cope with the transition i think this is super interesting so i'm glad you're asking them this is more looking at the top 
the luxurious consumption at the top also creates, you know, desires for the rest of society. And we've seen actually that in, in more unequal societies, people have a tendency to spend more on status goods. And basically there's more pressure for overconsumption for, for those, you know, that can, but that are not on the top top. Uh, and people typically, for instance, end up taking higher loans or because, you know, they want to live up to that kind of consumerist pressure that we've created. Um, but then there's also this aspect of greater equality creates societies with with less polarization. Um, I think, I mean, we know, we see that it's the more unequal the countries, the, the, the more polarized the societies. And we've, you know, the climate issue is more and more polarizing. And I think one of the Something that gives me hope from our report is that if we have more justice and equity as part of the transition, we can also create a transition that is more acceptable for people and where we can find solutions that can work and where everyone can be on board. So I think this is really hopeful. Coming back to the, the impact, because whatever happens, a significant amount of climate breakdown is already with us and, you know, particularly for the poorest countries. And that the more equal they are, the more able they are to deal with that too. So it's about mitigation and adapting to existing climate changes. And one of the really strong facts in there, I think, is that, you know, um, you're seven times more likely to die from flooding in an unequal country than an equal one. And and this whole idea that there's, which we got from Oxfam, Mexico, didn't we, that there's no such thing as a natural disaster, which you know, listeners might think, well, of course, there are natural disasters. But the point they were trying to make is natural events, extreme weather events happen. But what decides whether that's a disaster for society is how equal it is, how prepared it is. So uh, and you see that, you know, when disasters hit very unequal countries or countries that are very politically polarized, I mean, I only need to think how my own government responded to the COVID crisis, you know, how many people died because we had such a useless government and a really unequal society. So I think that was quite interesting. The role of equality in, in making us more able to come together and transition, but also come together and, and deal with the, the, the already existing climate breakdown that we have. I was actually going to say, in addition to radically increasing equality, we also need a just transition away from fossil fuels. Um, and for this, you know, the richest countries... Uh, who are largely responsible. They build their wealth based on a fossil uh, fuel-based economy, no? So the richest countries have to play uh, a big role in this. They need to be the ones to phase out furthest and fastest. So they need to do this as soon as possible. And we want to see this commitment, actually, this equitable, uh, fair phase-out at COP28. But also, this is not about, you know, a historical responsibility or things like that. But if you also look at uh, expansion of uh, new oil and gas fields, just five global north countries, and these are rich countries, yeah, the US, Canada, Australia, Norway, and the UK, will be responsible for over half of all the planned expansion for new and gas fields uh, to 2050. So this is the reason we need to keep them accountable. We need a just transition away from fossil fuels. But also there are hundreds of millions of people, especially in Africa, who don't have access to energy. And we recognize that energy is at the heart of development. So we also want to see 
you know, these communities, these countries uh, gaining access to renewable energy. So we need renewable energy for all. And, and again, the, the message there is really positive, isn't it? That, you know, similar to what we're saying about poverty, that with a reduction uh, in inequality and a real just transition, not just a transition, that we can deliver clean energy for the whole planet. Um, and and it, it is possible. The other big thing we looked at, we I mean, this is a massive issue, I'm sure, for lots of listeners, and it's a really vibrant debate, is, you know, not just the just energy transition, not just the reduction uh, in inequality, but the kind of... Uh, the the move beyond growth, if you like, or stopping a kind of focus entirely on economic growth. Um, Astrid, do you want to say a bit about that? Because that was quite a quite a fierce debate inside Oxfam, wasn't it? For that bit. Yeah, for sure. And to put it simply, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. At least we know that we cannot decouple economic growth from environmental impacts in time to contain the climate crisis. So we need to move away from GDP as a measure and focus on investing in things that are creating well-being for people and, you know, for the planet. So some sectors just have to shrink and disappear, like fossil fuels, fast fashion, yachts and private jets, like we spoke about. But we also need to invest and focus on sectors that are good for people, like the welfare system, also good for a social economy, like circular economy, sustainable agricultural practices. Yeah, I, th- I think that whole idea of repurposing, like a new purpose for our economies. So, you know, the, this idea that we're, we're just going to go for as much economic growth as possible and we're going to hope that some of it trickles down. Um, I mean, we know that never made sense from the point of view of reducing poverty, but from the point of view of saving the planet, it's an absolute disaster. I mean. One of the one of my favourite facts in the report is that it's the corollary of this the the fact that if you reduce inequality, you can uh, bring everybody up to twenty five dollars a day minimum whilst reducing emissions. So you you wouldn't be growing the kind of sum total of emissions; you'd be cutting that. If you did it the other way, where you just kept the world as unequal as it is. And you just went for the growth path. So you grew the economy to the point where there was no one on earth uh, with less than $25 a day. So you keep the trickle down. Uh, Not only would it take hundreds of years, the global economy would have to be 50 times bigger. So if you think how close we are to destroying our planet and smashing through these boundaries, not just in terms of climate change, but, you know, acidifying our oceans or poisoning our air and imagine a global economy that's 50 times bigger just in order to raise people above that level of $25 a day. So it just it just seems absolutely obvious that a reduction in inequality is the way to go. Um, and, and, and Max, I mean, that, as a sign for hope, I mean, you know, we're, we're very clear that we don't we, we don't feel that hair shirt um, economics is the way to go. We're, we're not saying people need to make massive sacrifices for the things that really matter, you know, their health, their livelihoods, their ability to, you know, live a decent life. All of that can continue. People can um, uh, maintain or secure uh, decent, comfortable lives. Um, But it does mean we have to give up, people have to give up on, 
you know, unnecessary luxury consumption. They need to accept some inconvenience, you know, like, I mean, we, some people will need to, uh, we will need to shift on to much more reliance on public transportation for those, you know, where, where it's feasible. Well, I should really stress, this is a story for the richest countries, but for the majority of people on earth, they need to consume more. And that's why we had to create the space, you know, there needs to be if we've only got limited growth left in our economy, then it needs to be growth in, you know, um, public transport in, in Nairobi, not growth in SUVs in, in West London. You know, so it is quite clear that we must have growth in incomes and consumption for, for most people on Earth if we're going to end poverty. So let's do that in the most efficient way. Mm. That, that's actually how we came to write this report, no? Uh the recognition that we have a limited carbon budget, if business as usual, the rich especially, will blow through it in the next five years. But how do we use this carbon budget wisely to address the climate crisis, but at the same time to, to do address huge inequality in our world? And that's why I think this report is really important, that it gives hope that we have the solution. We don't need to create anything new, yeah? We have to do a lot of work uh, with our politicians at national level, but also within the COP space, you know, within UNFCCC, this discussion has to take place because right now what we're talking about is the national climate plans of countries. And these national climate plans collectively around the world shows that the world is not on track to reduce global emissions. If we can get to that more progressive politics around national policies, then, then that will feed into uh, national plans that could actually stop climate breakdown. So I think it is, I personally, obviously, I think this, but I think it's really, really important to bring the two together. It's not just about bashing the rich. It's about building a politics that will deliver national change. Right. I mean, you know, in terms of the super rich shouldn't have this level of um, power. I mean, I think Oxfam, actually, we, sh you know, our, our report should be in, should be the manifesto. Actually, you know, they should, you know, maybe they put us in charge for a bit and, you know, like we'll, we'll, we'll provide all the right policies and the right laws. And, you know, what we, I mean, really what we have here, I think it's, um, it's, it's good. It's good. It's morally right. It's uh, defense human rights. It's good politics. It's good economics. Uh, they should give it a try. Brilliant. Thanks, um, Ashpak. Thanks, Astrid, for joining us to talk about uh, the report. I mean, encourage everyone to to um, to read it and look at it. There's so much interesting stuff in there. Loads of people from uh, inside and outside of Oxfam contributed. So it's really, really worth delving into. And um, yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you so much, all. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let us know your thoughts on this topic of climate and inequality. Yes, and, and definitely tune in next time. So uh, our next episode will be out in a couple of weeks. It's going to be fascinating. Please recommend us to your friends. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to the next episode. Cheers, everyone. Thank you so much. Speak soon. Mm -hmm.